So with going to two services, we're also starting a new series. I'm pumping a lot of information your way, okay? So if you're a note taker, today's a wonderful day to be here, okay? Uh, if you this weekend, today's a wonderful day to be here because we're pumping a lot of things your way. Next week, as we start two services, we also wanted to plan out around a series that we thought was very timely and a conversation that we thought would be uh, well worth having. It's uh, called What About is the conversation that we're going to be jumping into next week. And we're going to take five weeks and look at the top four things that create doubts in people's lives about Christianity. So we're going to take a look at what about science, what about hypocrisy, what about, uh, what about exclusivity, what about uh, suffering. And we're just going to dive into them and say, what does Jesus have to say about that? And ultimately, we want to create a conversation. Because you might be here and you've been in church for a while and you're like, I have those doubts. I have those questions. I'm not sure what I believe fully inside of those categories. And you need to know you're welcome here and that we want to engage you just as much as anybody else. But you might be here and Jesus is a new thing or a new concept or maybe being here in church is a new experience. And maybe you're like, this is what's been holding me back is all of these questions and these wonderings and what is all of this stuff have to do with it, right? And we want to try to run into these conversations. My goal is not to answer every question, but to start a conversation and to equip you to be able to run into your life personally, but also run into other people's lives and have these conversations and allow it to center around Jesus, okay? So five weeks in October, the series, the conversation we're gonna have is called What About? And we would love for you to engage with that We'll have plenty of resources for you to tackle on your own, but it's going to be a fun series as we walk through that. Cool? Now, we as a family, so I am married to my wonderful wife, Jessica. We uh, are celebrating nine years this year. We have two kids. We this year, we this year started school in our house, okay? So we dropped our kids off at preschool, uh, the, the Wednesday after Labor Day, and it was, it was almost more traumatic for me than it was my kids. I was like bawling inside. I'm like, no, it started, right? School has started. How many in the room remember walking into their first day of school? Any, any show of hands, right? So, wow, some of you, yes. Right? Others of you are like, I just want to forget it, so I don't even want to remember, right? I vaguely remember moments growing up where I walked into school for the first day, right? Some of them were exciting, some of them were terrifying, but you want to know the most terrifying first day of school what it was for me it was college it was college yeah 18 year old Joel freaking out about college because here's what happened I went to Ashland University okay so I'll make a long story short I went to Ashland University because they had a major there called sports communication that I wanted to major in and I wanted to be on ESPN that didn't happen, okay? So God led me another way, and I became a pastor, which I am totally thrilled about, and the calling of my life was that. But I went there for that reason, and as I was jumping in, and, and we went over the summer to orientation day and learning all this stuff, right? I was getting amped up for the first day of school, getting amped up to move in, right? In theory, it was really exciting. In reality, it's scary, okay? And it was even more scary for me because I had to show up two, maybe three days earlier than all the other freshmen because I got an on-campus job at the rec center. So the rec center wanted to train us in CPR and they wanted to train us in our jobs and all that stuff. So they took two or three days to do that. And I remember my parents, they loaded me up in the van. I drove my car. And as we're driving, you start to process like this is actually happening, right? 
Because at this point, this is the first time that I had been living or will be living on my own. Up to that point, it's been with my parents. And so all the wheels started to move. I'm like, oh, i got to figure this out on my own. I have to do laundry for the first time. I have to figure out food and, like, actually eat three meals a day and not just snacks and pizza, right? I have to figure this stuff out. And I was a little intimidated because I knew my family wasn't going to be around, right? You start to process that a little bit. It's only 45 minutes, maybe an hour away, but that's going to feel different. We get down there, and my dad and my mom, and just really us as a family, we like to have a plan. We like to go after it. We like to know what to expect, and we showed up, and we expected people to greet us with signs and balloons and excitement. And we showed up, and no one was waiting for us. And I remember walking into my dorm, which was the worst dorm in Ashland University, right? And I walk in, and someone walks by, and we're like, hey, we're here to check in. And the guy's like, I don't know what you're supposed to do or where you're supposed to go. And I was like, great. Where am I supposed to be right now, right? And that was consistent until we went to the student center and started asking questions. Well, in like an hour, I had to be at my first meeting. And I remember my dad, he's starting to get frustrated, and he's like, no one is helping us. I'm like, I know no one's helping us. I need someone to help me, you know? It's like freaking out in here. We finally get the keys, and we drive up to my dorm. We unload, and literally it was just like we're chucking things into the room because at this point we're down to like 30, 20, 15 minutes till I have to be at the rec center. You don't want to be that guy that shows up late to your first job, right? And I remember as we unpacked and we got everything into the car, and then all of a sudden I have to run off to the rec center, I remember watching my family drive away, and I was terrified. I was intimidated. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. And in that moment, in maybe the most literal sense, my family sent me into something new, sent me into something that was unknown to any of us in experience. We didn't know what to expect or anticipate. And I remember everything inside of me wanted to run. I don't know where, but just run because it was uncomfortable a little bit. And yet, as I kept going back, I kept seeing why I was supposed to be at Ashland's. And what God was doing today, even though the first experience was real intimidating. And here's the reality. Today, Jesus is going to invite us into a prayer that will challenge our comfortability and arguably even our confidence. That today what we're going to look at is a prayer that is dangerous, is intimidating, is scary, and yet is one that if you are a follower of Jesus is most necessary because I don't believe that Jesus wants us to just stay where we are at, but he wants to lead us into where he wants us to go. Today, we're going to look at the prayer, send me, send me. We've been in this series called teach us to pray. We're looking at a passage in Luke 11 where Jesus's disciples most literally interrupt his prayer time. You ever had your kids do that? You're reading a book or praying and they're like, daddy, I'm like, I'm with Jesus. Why are you doing this, right? Jesus was with his father, and his disciples were like, Jesus, teach us to do what you're doing. And I love Jesus' response because their hearts are, teach us to pray, Jesus, because they saw something different. They were hearing something different. Jesus was interacting with the father differently. The disciples took note of that. 
Luke 11, if you just want to look at verses 2 and 4 with me. He said to them, after they asked, teach us to pray. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. In this series, we're looking at three different prayers. Three different intimidating, dangerous, nerve-wracking prayers that Jesus invites us into through this prayer. Because I don't believe this prayer was just meant to be recited, but actually gives us an outline for how to think about prayer and interact with the Father. The first week, we looked at Search Me. We looked at the prayer of Search Me, and we looked at Psalm 139, where David is praying, God, search me and know my heart. We said inside of the prayer of search me, we're asking God to see my sin, to find my fears, and to lead me into life everlasting with him. So that's a dangerous prayer because usually what's in our hearts takes a while to be exposed, and yet we're asking God to do that for us. The second week, last week, we looked at the prayer of break me. Break me. Break my heart for what breaks yours, Father. We said we need to be broken to run into his kingdom. So, Father, break me of my kingdom. Break me of my comforts. And then give me courage to run into your kingdom ways. And today we're going to look at the prayer of send me. We're going to look at the prayer of send me. And before we jump into it, I, I want to pray over us. Because my prayer is this, is this would not just be a conversation that we had for a month with some good tidbits on prayer, and we just leave it at that. My prayer is that we as a church would embrace these prayers and ask God to do something in us and through us, that we can't even imagine in and of ourselves. And so, Father, as we come to you today, Father, first, we praise you. You are God and creator and Father, the most holy and righteous and good. And we thank you. We thank you that you're the you are faithful and consistent and constant, and you're the comforter of our life and the caretaker. Father, this morning, as we reflect upon this prayer, Father, would you help us to reflect upon the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would you make him center in all of what we talk about? Would you lean our hearts into this conversation uniquely? so that we can see him. Father, humble us, open us, create conversations in us. Father, would you open our hearts and our minds, our eyes to the beauty and the wonder of who you are. Father, would you take us from where we are at to where we need to go this morning. And Father, I pray that whoever may be here, whatever they may be walking through, whatever high, high, or low, low, that, Father, you would speak to them with your grace and mercy, if nothing else. Allow them to know that you're present with them in that. And Father, we give you this conversation, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Here's reality. We're talking about send me, and we see in the passage 
In Luke 11, verse 2, Jesus say this. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's the reality about this prayer, and it kind of dovetails from last week, that the prayer of send me, but really the prayers that we've been talking about, do not first, are not first about me, but they're first about God. The prayer of send me is not first about me, but rather first about him. It is a prayer of complete surrender to his will. Craig Rochelle in his book, Dangerous Prayers, would say this. What if instead of always asking God to do something on our behalf, we dared to ask God to use us on his behalf? Rather than asking God to serve us, what if we told God we are available to serve him? That's a dangerous prayer. It's a scary prayer. It's a prayer that honestly is not innate in me. It is a challenge for me to process that, to, to think about that, to even run into that. Because here's the reality. My college experience, as unique as it was moving in, as challenging as it was jumping into it and intimidating, because it was the first time on my own, it was a sending moment. It was a moment of being sent. It was a moment that I was running into, and being sent into something carries weight and responsibility. It carries something different, the aura does. And I think oftentimes when we talk about being sent, at least in my mind, so I'll speak for myself and you find yourself wherever you might be at. When I think about being sent, I often think about being sent into something comfortable, like I said, my parents and I were planners. So the fact we showed up and there was no plan was very uncomfortable for us. We got mad, right? And I think sometimes even in my Jesus-following existence, I think that being sent means being comfortable still. That being sent means I need to launch into what is easy, what fits me, what fits comfortable and so asking God to do this is a very uncomfortable prayer. Not just praying on our behalf, but praying and asking God to use us on his behalf. Because in the situation I was in through college, I was uncomfortable. It was an uncomfortable, controlled situation with people that I like and anything outside of that must not be of God. But today, today, we're going to see the prayer of send me. We're going to see a prayer that pushes us into the most uncomfortable regions of our life. Pushes us in the most challenging of ways, the most uncontrolled ways. And yet, as we look at this prayer, one of the things that I fear about this prayer is this. Is that we would just pray this prayer and not see God in the process. That we would just pray this prayer as a motto of my life to just go do the things so that I can do it as, as best as I can or do it at the most ability that I can. And we forget to see God in this prayer. We forget to slow down and see what God is doing in our own lives to send us into this prayer. And there's an Old Testament chapter, an Old Testament book written by a prophet. The prophet's name is Isaiah. And he's a powerful chapter 
where there's an invitation that God has on his life to be sent. And yet, before we get to the part of send me, Isaiah has an encounter with the God of the universe that is way beyond what you and I could ever imagine. Isaiah 6 is where we're going to be the rest of the time. Isaiah 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, give you context. Isaiah is writing to the nation of Israel. He himself lives there. He is prophesying to them in a time of turmoil and desperation. Their beloved king, Uzziah, died. And he kind of held everything together. He was the glue. He was a good king. And inside of that nation... After Uzziah dies, everything's starting to fall apart. And so as Isaiah is writing into this situation, he's writing to people that are questioning a lot, that are navigating what to do next, are wondering where to go with everything. And then he has a vision in chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. This is what he writes. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. High and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah saw God lifted and high. That he had this vision that I think we all hope for and desire, maybe anybody does, to see the divine or interact with the divine. And yet he got to visibly see it and be inside of that moment. And Isaiah is sitting there inside of this vision in front of the God of the universe. And what we see written after that is it is so bright and God is so holy that he can't even put his eyes upon him. And inside of this scene, Isaiah writes about these creatures, the seraphim. And literally, I don't know if this is accurate or not, right? But a best attempt at what Isaiah possibly seen, these creatures have wings. They have six wings that are covering them in different places, and they're shielding their eyes from the God of the universe who is holy and almighty, and his holiness you can't even bear upon. And Isaiah is inside of this vision. And the word translated from seraphim literally means to burn literally means to burn, that the scene that Isaiah probably was upon was something so bright and magnificent, something like a fire, something that you and I, we would just, oh, we'd have to turn away from. He's standing there in front of the Holy Father that Jesus in Luke 11 is praying to and introducing us to. That's the interaction that he's having. That literally, he's in the presence of God. In the temple, the shaking smoke was rising. The reality is this. We read a passage like this. There's flames, there's, you know, seraphim, there's this presence of God. And I read these passages, and I don't know if you're like me, and I stop and I'm like, when will that happen for me? Like, I want to experience God in a new, fresh way. And maybe you're there in your life and you're like, well, I want to have that vision, right? I want to have a vision that's like dungy and dark, right? I want to have that vision. I want to see God. And the reality is this. You and I get to see something 
beyond what we could ever even imagine, and his name is Jesus. That the physical representation of the God of the universe came into our earth. And my fear is this, is that we live busy, busy, busy lives. We never stop to actually run into the presence of God. We never stop to actually interact and encounter the God of the universe because I have to get things done. And so we'd like this experience, but our lives are too busy to accommodate to this kind of experience and to actually be in the presence and draw near to God. And so just for a moment, just for a moment, because my fear is we stop at belief that there is a God that exists out there, maybe like this, and never pursue knowing him. And Isaiah he invites us into a front row seat of the wonder and the glory of the God of the universe. And I just wonder for a minute if you were just to close your eyes with me. This would be a very experiential service, okay? Close your eyes with me. And I want you just to stop. And I want to read something to you. Who is this God? Who is this God that we are here for, that maybe you questioning that maybe you're wondering about, and maybe you're not so sure if you actually believe, who is this God? Let me read something from A.W. Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God, with your eyes closed, and I want you just to create an image in your mind. What a broad world to roam in, what a sea to swim in, is this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is eternal, which means that he annotates time and is wholly independent of it. Time began in him and will end in him. To it he pays no tribute, and from it he suffers no change. He is immutable, which means that he has never changed and can never change in the smallest measure. To change, he would need to go from better to worse or from worse to better. He cannot do either for being perfect. He cannot become more perfect. And if he were to become less perfect, he would be less than God. He is omniscient, which means that he knows in one free and effortless act all matter, all spirit, all relationships, all events. He has no past and he has no future. He is, and none of the limiting and qualifying terms used of creatures can apply to him. Love and mercy and righteousness are his, and holiness so infallible that no comparisons or figures will avail to express it. Only fire can give even a remote conception of it. In fire, he appeared at the burning bush. In the pillar of fire, he dwelt through all the long wilderness journey. The fire that glowed between the wings of the cherubim in the holy place was called the presence. Through the years of Israel's glory, and when the old had given place to the new, he came at Pentecost as a fiery flame and rested upon each disciple. That is our God. You can open your eyes. And sometimes I don't think we pause enough and allow ourselves to sit enough inside of the wonder and the glory of who God is and invite him to shock us and shake us from the inside out. But here's also something that's interesting is that inside of this passage, Isaiah responds very uniquely to this. Because inside of me, I want to have this experience so that I can feel better and I can look upon the glory and amazements of God, and yet Isaiah's response is baffling of sorts, in particular in our cultural moment. This is what Isaiah does after he sees this, interacts with this. He says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. 
For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atones for. Here's where I want to start. Send me needs humility. Send me needs humility. I think oftentimes send me starts with me being as big and bad as I can to go out and do the thing. And Isaiah actually responds in humility to seeing the glory and the wonder of the God of the universe. God's holiness led to Isaiah's humility. That the holiness of God, the wonder, the picture of fire led to Isaiah is saying, woe is me. I'm a sinner in need of grace, in need of something more. I think oftentimes, unfortunately, the thing that gets in the way of me knowing and loving God more is me. I get in the way of myself. I I can all too often blame it on Satan. Yeah, he has a role in it. Or others. Maybe they were rolling it. But have you ever gotten out of your own way and allowed the God of the universe to speak into your life in a profound and beautiful way? Because the reality is this. God is the only one who can help me see what I am missing. And he is the only one who can save me from what I am missing. When Isaiah runs into the God of the universe and he blocks his eyes and he is, woe is me. What he is seeing is he is missing something. That he is not God. And that any sort of self-will way that he is trying to be that for himself is missing and it's not doing justice. And so what he sees is not some hellfire and brimstone from God, but what he sees is, I need God. I need this powerful interaction, this interruption into my life. The one who exposes in me the deficiency is also the one who fulfills it in me. That is our God. And all too often, I get in the way of myself. No, 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 I got this, God. I can figure it out. I'm not that bad. My heart's not that sinful. It's not that ugly. What Isaiah says is when you've come face to face with the holy God of the universe, it will expose what's missing. And yet at the same time, you will be offered something that you don't have. It's not on the screen, but I would write this down. Unless I see myself as a sinner, I will never interact with God as my savior. Unless I see myself as a sinner, I will never interact with God as my Savior. He'll just be the big guy upstairs, the personal pocket God that I use when I need help, the feel-good guru. And the reality is this. We live in a time, and this is not new, okay? So I don't want you to think that 21st century, what's going on around us is this like, whoa, it's like, this is new and this is crazy and what's going on? Like, this has happened cyclically over years of human history, What's happening right now is we will take the fruits 
of the gospel of Jesus, the fruits of Christianity, the fruits of who God is, we'll take the fruits of that without taking him as Savior. I like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But I can do that on my own. We dismiss God as the one who we need. And the beauty of this scene is seeing God as my Savior. One, in the glory that he displays, but two, in the grace that he displays. How amazing is this scene, if you didn't capture it? In this scene, Isaiah I can imagine is knocked down by the weight, knocked down by the glory, knocked down by the holiness of God. He is like shuddering and he's probably scared to death in some way. There's this fear of the Lord, this positive fear of the Lord that's hit him. And then at the same time, one of the seraphim takes a burning coal from the altar and comes and touches his lip. This is an illustration of the grace of God. He says, you have been forgiven that my holiness doesn't just expose your weakness, but it also, it fulfills it in my strength. That I came into this world not to condemn, but to save. And so what Isaiah is seeing is this, is there is a God who's creator, who is the master of the universe, king over all, he's in control, he loves us. And in his love, he is holy and set apart. Trust me, we want a God who is holy and set apart. And we have sinned. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve. And in sinning, we have separated ourselves from God. And the God of the universe loves us so much he decided to send his one and only son into the mess to save us. And what's powerful about Jesus' ministry is this, is that Jesus was 100% divine, 100% human at the same time. And he did not grasp equality with God as something to be used for his own sake, but to be used to serve and save others. That the holiness of Jesus did not distance people or destroy people. It saved and healed people. It exposed what was going on in their life. And at the same time, his love wrapped them and he saved them. Here's the reality. In and of myself, I cannot perform for my verdict Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection performed on my behalf. Tim Keller would say this. You see, the verdict is in. And now I perform on the basis of this verdict because he loves me and he accepts me. I do not have to do things just to build up my resume. I do not have to do things to make me look good. I do not do things for the joy. I do things for the joy of them now. I can help people to help people, not so I feel better about myself, not so I can fill up my emptiness. When I run into the presence of God, I recognize I'm empty, but I also recognize he's the only one that can fill me up. That's why send me starts with humility. It starts with recognizing I cannot do it on my own. It starts with recognizing that in this life, it is not up to me to save me. Only Jesus can do that. 
What Isaiah does is he starts off, not by saying, where do you want me to go, God? But recognizing God is God and I am not. And when I look at Jesus, the verdict is in and I perform out of that verdict. I don't have to perform for it. At the cross and resurrection, Jesus forgave us. And it is our job, per se, to humble us to that. Some of us, maybe it's for the first time, we've been trying to live on our own accord. We're trying to survive on our own. And today, he wants to humble you by allowing you to see him as your Savior. But for others of us, listen, listen, listen. You've been in church a while. You know the Jesus story. You feel good about it. Life's going pretty well. And yet every single day he invites us to humble ourselves to him. Because the thing that's built into me, human nature that's built into me, is to do it on my own every single day. And he says, I want you to run into me, humble yourself to the reality that I am the only one who can forgive sins and cleanse you. I am the only one who is God, and I am the one who leads you. If you've said yes to Jesus 40, 30, 20, 10 years ago, five years ago, 10 minutes ago, you need him just as much tomorrow as you did yesterday. You just started to recognize he's Savior, and you are not. And if you want to be sent to share that with others, you first have to open your heart every single morning to the reality that he is that for you. That's where Isaiah goes. So how do we respond to this? Where do we run into that? James chapter 4. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. My invitation, my question to you is this. Where do you need to humble yourself and come near to the Lord? Where do you need to humble yourself? Maybe it's starting in prayer. Search me, Father. I don't know. And yet I need it. For others of us, maybe it's been revealed already. And we need to run into that. But do you see what James says here? Come near to the Lord and he will come near to you. The closer you drive yourself into the presence of God, the closer he's going to drive himself into you. And as intimidating and scary as that is for us as human beings to think about, it is the only place of comfort and grace and confidence that you and I can run into. Come near to him. He will come near to you. Humble yourselves to him. And he will fill you because Jesus did for you what you could not do for yourselves. Send me needs humility. But secondly, Isaiah 6, 8. This is after Isaiah, in a sense, gets cleansed and forgiven. And he is a sinner in the presence of God. And there's separation there. The seraphim come. And there's this change. This happens in verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. This is what I would write down. Send me, secondly, needs willingness. Send me, needs willingness. <laughs> I love this, right? You hear me up here all the time. I volunteer for this, volunteer for that. It's biblical. 
The triune God was asking for a volunteer, right? He's like, who will I send? Who will go for me? Who will volunteer? Who will jump into this mission that I have for us? Now, listen, don't miss it. Eyes up here. Don't miss it. We can, we can laugh at that. God need a volunteer. How humbling and honoring is it that the God of the universe would invite us into what he's doing on this earth? You come out of that woe is me, I can't be in the presence of God moment, and then he's like, who will I send? The same God that was, or the same guy that was backing up and was scared to death and was probably shaking to death, that's who I'll send. He is a gracious God. That ultimately in our repentance, in our humility, in our laying down of our life, in our laying down of our sin, in our presenting our junk to him and him cleansing through Jesus Christ, he wants to do something in us that we cannot do in and of ourselves no matter how hard you try, and it is humbling, and it is honoring, and it is beautiful. He wants us to be a part of his team and fulfill his purpose. I remember I played uh, seventh grade football, and my dad was the coach. It was an awesome experience because I went to practice with him all the way, all the years up to that, and then I get to play for my dad. And we, uh, we ran into practice and the two-a-days, all that stuff, and then games started. And there was a kid on the team, and uh, we loved this kid to death. He was a bigger kid. He would have been a great offensive lineman. He got the fancy helmet because his head was bigger than everybody else's, so he got the fancy helmet right, and all of us, all of us other guys were like, well, he got the fancy helmet, right? And all this stuff. And I remember it was a game or two in. He's got the uniform. He's got the fancy helmet. And my dad's coaching, and we tried to get everybody in, right? And it's the third quarter, fourth quarter. Game's kind of coming down to an end, and he looks around, and he says, Comfort. Comfort, because in football you refer to people by their last names, okay, right? Comfort, comfort. And he finds him. He says, comfort, go in. And this dude looks at my dad and just goes like this. <laughs> now, side note, we felt, I feel bad for him now. The kid didn't want to play football, right? His dad wanted him to play football. He didn't want to play football. But he was just staying there and going, nope. And here's, here's what I'm scared of for my own life. Just speak to myself. I got the uniform. I got the right helmet, I got the right socks, wristbands, got the eye black on. I play the part as a Christian. I look it. And God says, who will go for me? Who will I send? My biggest fear is that I've looked at God and went like this. I'm more worried about my comfort because I wasn't willing to respond to the God of the universe. I was more worried about my comfort my kingdom growing, my will being done. And we can live this Christian life and put on the uniform and put on the right helmet and we got everything looking great. I, I've got the photo op stuff. Everybody at school thinks that I play really well, but when the game time comes, am I willing to jump into where God is calling me to? Am I willing to go where he wants to send me? And here's the reality. You don't have to be a professional to do that. Some of, actually, all of the most willing hearts are normal, average, underneath-the-surface people who are just willing to trust God. That's who the disciples were. We looked at the disciples, we're like, the 12 disciples, the chosen, man, these guys were awesome. They're a bunch of fishermen. They had no idea what they were doing. And it says it in Acts 4, Acts 4, 12 and 13. This is what it says. They just got done speaking to the Sanhedrin. Salvation has found no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by what, 
uh, which we must be saved. When they saw Peter and John, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the, the Jews of the day, when they saw Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. Your willingness is not a matter of how professional you are in ministry. It's not how much you've studied. Your willingness is dependent on how much you've been with Jesus. And what I love is this, unschooled, ordinary men and women. Jesus likes to use people that are the most unsuspecting. Our campus is a story of that actively happening right now. You all, you all are doing this. Some of you all are leading ministries in our campus that three years ago you weren't. You're leading full-blown outreach ministries just because you're willing to say yes to Jesus. Some of you are embracing kids in your life right now that needed someone. You signed up for it and said, I'm willing. You're running into your workplaces, into your families, into your friends. Listen, don't minimize Jesus and the power of God inside of your story. He uses unschooled, ordinary men and women that are willing to run into it. This is what I'd love to see in 50 years. I would love for people in Barberton and beyond to look at us and think, wow, a group of normal people made an unnormal difference. Not Pastor Joel, wow, look how great he is. Look how awesome he preaches. Wow, look at Grace Church. Got stickers on the back of the cars. Got the patio. It's real fancy over there. No, 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 no. I'd love for people to be like, who are, who are they? I don't know, but they've been with someone named Jesus, and they're doing something awesome over here. Well, what's their, what's their titles? Ah. Unschooled ordinary people. Yes, we are. If Jesus is at the center of that, he'll make it happen. So the question I would ask is this. Are you willing to say yes? Are you willing to say yes? Listen, don't have to be schooled in it. Don't have to be trained in it. Don't have to have some degree in it. You don't have to be up here standing and preaching on Sundays to do it. Better than I am up here right now. Just be honest. You running into people's lives more effective. Are you willing? At your work, at your family, at your friends. Lastly is this. I know this passage is lengthy, but don't miss this last part. Because arguably Isaiah 6, 8 is where things end. Send me. And then we get the rallying troops. Woohoo, let's go, right? We're like, send us, let's do this thing, right? Whoa, 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 whoa. You read Isaiah 6, the rest of the passage, you may not want to be sent. Because this is what Isaiah hears from the Lord. Isaiah 6, 9, 10. He said, this is God talking to Isaiah. Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Here's what... The last point is, send me needs faithfulness. 
Send me needs faithfulness. This passage is found in several New Testament passages. What is God saying here? What God is saying is people will hear the message and they'll run. They will hear the message and their ears will close, their eyes will close, their hearts will get harder. They will hear the message and they will run the opposite direction. They won't want to have anything to do with God. Because if they do, they would turn, repent, and run into them and run into God and be healed. And here's the reality. My fear is this, that inside of the church culture, the American church culture, my fear is when we talk about send me, we always anticipate that it's going to be a success based on how we define a success. Oh, we got to have the numbers, and we got to have this many people come to Jesus, and we got to this and this and this, and that's great to track, and we need to, and that's a blessing. But listen, what God is telling Isaiah right now is this, is that more people than not in Isaiah's situation are going to turn and run from the message than run into God. You talk about depressing mission, that's pretty depressing. That more people are going to run from the gospel than run into it. And there's seasons, but the season that God's speaking to Isaiah in is not great for Israel. And maybe you have been there or you know someone like that. They're like, I just, I keep sharing Jesus with them. They keep running. What do I do? They keep just running further. How do I interact with this? I would say this real quickly. We love and shower grace more and more. Not everyone is going to accept the message of the gospel, and that is not a failure on the person sharing the gospel. Because here's what Isaiah asked next. He asked a legit question. Then he said, for how long, Lord? He's like, oh, sweet mercy. Like, is this my existence? I'll share your goodness and your grace, and people are going to run? Listen to what the Lord says. Listen to what the Lord says. Isaiah 6, 11, 13. He answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the lands. Not only will people turn, but the nation that Isaiah is serving is going to become bleak. The entire land will be desolate. The people will be scattered. My people will be rebellious. My people will be defeated. You'll only be left with a small remnant, which scholars believe is like 10%. And of that, who knows? They might be the 10% that turn from the message. Who knows? God is telling Isaiah this. People will get farther from the gospel. And he will share the good news as he watches a nation fall apart. That is his mission. That is his mission. Now, I'm not up here correlating that to today. So please don't put those two things together, okay? In our country. I don't want you, that is not what Isaiah is talking about. But I do think that the human nature is cyclical. I think there's seasons where this is more of a reality than fruit and response and humility. And yet we read that. 
People are turning from God, and nation, the nation is being destroyed. And yet there's a seed of hope. There's a seed of hope. Did you, did you see it? The holy seed will be the stump in the land. The holy seed will be a stump in the land. The holy seed's not disappearing. In the most bleak of times, the gospel does not disappear or get weaker. It is always present. It's always holy. It's always good. But sometimes it looks like a stump. That would cut down a tree. Why do they remove stumps? Stumps look ugly. Looks bleak. Lifeless. Doesn't look good. You get some termites in there, then it looks really bad, right? What Isaiah is hearing God say is this. My holy seed, the good news of who I am is not going away, but it might look like a stump in this season. But if you're willing to be faithful when it's a stump, I promise you, you will see fruit in it. And even if you don't see fruit in it, it will produce that. Because later on, Isaiah 61, this is what we read. Isaiah 61 is our vision passage for the next three years. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. It's the prophecy of Jesus because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide those who grieve in Zion next, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Here's what I think Isaiah is telling us. The holy seed, it might be in seasons, it might look like a stump, but trust me, just trust me, it will become an oak of righteousness. That the holy seed might be a stump in seasons, but if you are faithful, you and generations to come will see the righteousness of that seed growing in people's lives because Jesus changes everything. Jesus changes everything. Here, here's the reality. Right now, you might feel like you're looking at a stump. You might be like, culture, world, my friends, my family, my siblings, my kids. What am I supposed to do? Is it ineffective? Does the gospel actually change? Does it actually do anything? Does it actually matter? Listen, sometimes God has to grind us down to nothing to make something beautiful grow out of that. Sometimes there are seasons that don't make sense. Sometimes there are seasons that don't always have fruit like we want to see fruit happening. But I believe the gospel always makes a stump become an oak, a holy stump becoming an oak of righteousness. And we cannot, we cannot give up when it's a stump season. We can't. Because here's the reality. The faithfulness of, to the message is greater than the fruit of the messenger. Faithfulness to the message is greater than fruit of the messenger. I want us to be a church that does not just staple fruit to a tree, but is faithful to the holy seed of the gospel. 
even when stump life is happening. Because our faithfulness to the good news of Jesus is more important than us coming up with some, some fake way of stapling fruit of saying, this is happening. Let's try to calculate it so that we look good. The gospel always looks good. And if people want to respond to that, praise the Lord. But if they don't, that is not on our ends. We ask the Spirit to do that. We ask the Spirit to work. Faithfulness in the seasons of stump and faithful in the seasons of the oak. Now, here's the reality. Let's make it personal. It's the last one service, so I'm going as long as I want, okay? Because next week, I got a time limit. Paige, Heather, and Catherine have all told me that. Here's the reality. We live in a city that has 16,000 people religiously unaffiliated, which means that there are 16,000 people that would at some level say, I don't follow Jesus, believe in Jesus, I'm a nun, uh, religion in any form, I'm out. Reality is this, for us as a church, being faithful to the message is the thing that God asks us. And right now, maybe I'm just off, but right now it might feel like we're in a stump season. And it feels like this. It's trickling one at a time. Oh my gosh, how long is this going to be? They didn't call me back. They didn't want to have coffee again. It's been a, a while. I see them at every family reunion. I'm not really sure. And the invitation I think God is placing on our heart is to not stop. It might feel like a stump. I'm telling about Jesus. This is really long and hard. I'm not sure what to do with it. In our faithfulness to doing this, in a season that might be hard or not make sense, it's really important. Because here's the reality. You and I don't know. You know, I don't know what ministry is going to look like the next 25, 30, 40 years. Brings our next generation or generations to come or tomorrow a season where we see this. And then a season where we see this. Because here's the reality. Listen, right now, they're destined for hell. We don't like that. We, we, we don't like to talk about that. But can you imagine if we were faithful now to what God is doing, faithful to the message, even if the fruit doesn't feel like it's there, what 16,000 beads, people's lives could be changed. Listen, I don't want us to think that send me is first in and of myself or that it's always determined and based off of how I would view success. Send me starts with me seeing him, being willing to go as an ordinary, normal person and being faithful to people 
the process. So as the team comes up and we close, here's my invitation. My invitation is that we wouldn't just see this as an illustration. That we wouldn't just see this as Joel got 16,000 beads all over the floor. Who's going to clean that up? We wouldn't just see it as, wow, that was fun. But that we would see it as an opportunity to start praying that God would do something in these people's lives. I don't want a church that is self-focused. My fear sometimes is we see church as a place where I can get my social outlet, my, my, my social club feel, where I can get my programs or my events or, or where I feel like I can do the things I want to do and I, I pick a church according to what they have to offer me. The church is a family on mission to those without Jesus. that my prayer is that we would be a church faithful to the gospel where we are at. It don't matter size, no matter what events, or programs. What matters is you sit here today in a city that has 16,000 lost people and God has invited you here for a specific reason because here's the reality, if not us, who? Who? If we're just going to be settled with programs and events, fine. Fill up the calendar. Let's go. Those aren't bad. Don't hear me wrong. They're not bad. But if they're just about filling up what I want and what I desire, we're missing the point. It's overflowing in our city. It, it, it is not. And my prayer for us is this is that we would stick our feet in the grounds on the gospel and we would not move from it. And that in the process, we would become a church passionate about prayer, asking God to search us, break us, and send us for the sake of us sharing the good news of Jesus with the 16. How many of them will come? I don't know. That's not my job. My job is to be faithful to the calling that you and I have here in Barberton. My invitation, in the most literal sense, is are you willing to cross the line with us? To step into dangerous prayers that step into dangerous lifestyles that force us to get outside of ourselves and into God and into others. Two services, not for us. Patio, not for us. 
community spaces, not for us. They're going to hell. And we have someone who has saved us. And so my invitation is this, okay? Sorry, I'm completely wrecking the time on you. Is if you would be willing to pray those prayers with us. And would you be willing to show up tonight to have fun? Yes, we're going to have fun. But to just pray and worship our hearts out on our patio as a demonstration to our community that we are for them, not against them. And that we have something to offer in Jesus. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I want you to just spend a moment with God. Paige and the team, they'll start singing. I want you to spend a moment with God. Ask him to search your heart, break your heart, send you. Where is it? Send you into your school. Send you into your family. Send you into your workplace. Send you into your friends. Where is he have you and where is he going to send you? To change the world? I don't know. Be faithful to the gospel? Yes. Be willing? Yes. Ask God to make it real to you. Father, as we go into this prayer, would you just open our hearts to where you want us to be?